0: This morning's sermon is going to be Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Let's pray for God's grace this morning. Father, we humbly bow before your word and we ask for it to have its way in our hearts and our minds. That you would work by your spirit through it, convicting, teaching and instructing. Most of all, Father, causing in us repentance. That we would always have a heart that's humble, hearing and turning toward you. We ask for grace and much of it. Father, please. Please. Because unless you're here, unless you work by your spirit, there really seems to be no sense. Work in amongst us through your word and do it for your glory, for your namesake, for the extension of your kingdom. Most of all, do it for the sake of your beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray, in whom we worship, in whom we do all that we do this morning. Amen. Well, here before us this morning in Luke chapter 3 is a text that speaks some hard truths in order to create soft hearts. I don't know if you've ever seen a hammer swung before. Some of you are familiar with hammers. Others of you know that they're good for wrecking things. And others of you, I'm not sure which end of the hammer to hold. But we have all are familiar with a hammer. It's kind of a basic tool in life. If you've ever taken a hammer and if you've ever hit in something like certain kinds of steel, sometimes when you hit it, it'll create sparks. And sparks can fly with a hammer. But on the other hand, if you take a hammer and you're needing to nudge a piece of wood just nicely into place, it works great. You give it a little tap, a little nudge, sometimes a hard hit, sometimes several whacks, and you get it to move and get it right where you, you need it to be. It's pretty effective, actually. Hammers can be great tools, and we try to use them as wrenches. and uh, we, we, They're just good for so many, so many things. Most of us have them around our house because they're effective. And you know what's amazing is that when we look at the life of John the Baptist, as we're going about to see here, I think they wrongly named him. Sure, he baptized, but they probably should have called him John the Hammer. Because around John, one of two things happened. He swung hard, and either sparks flew, or things moved. Either hearts that were hard resisted, or hearts that were soft broke. And the hearts that were soft that broke were led to repentance. But I'll tell you one thing, stuff happened. And this is what we're seeing in the life of John, is that... He truly was a man of the hammer. He didn't mince his words. And one way or another, something was going to move. You know, what he's about to tell us this morning is very necessary. And why is it necessary? We're going to note, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. God in the flesh is about to show up. And when God is about to show up and people are about to meet God, they need to be prepared. They need to be ready. And that's what He's doing. He's preparing the way. He's a preparer. He's the one who goes before the Lord to prepare the way. That's his job. That's his ministry. And people, if people are going to see God, they need to be prepared. It's vitally important. As we've all noted this past week or so, life is short, isn't it? I don't know, it seems crazy. It's, people are dying all over the place. You know, we've, in this past week, a little over a week, Cameron's lost his dad. Michelle's lost her mom. A whole bunch of people in Oso lost family members. There was a guy in Wenatchee, Gene Helsel, the pastor of a CRAC church there, young man, 25, he died. It's like, this all happened in a little over a week. Some people live in a world and a life in a kind of setting where, where death is very common. You know what's, what's good about death is it makes us all realize that we're headed there too. That life is short. No one's guaranteed me tomorrow. And the thing about it is that one day we all have to meet our maker. One day we all are going to see God. All of us. And it, it, what it does, it, it, for me at least anyways, it shakes me out of my complacent life, my routine life, thinking that everything's just the way it is and tomorrow will be like yesterday. It helps me to realize, you know, one day I will see God. And John, John the Baptist, as we know him, but we're going to see him this morning as the hammer, John the hammer helps people to get ready to see God. Because when you see God, if you're about to see God, especially if you're seeing, seeing God in a, in a powerful way, you want to be ready. That's important to be ready. So as we're going to look at this morning, God's Word will make us ready. It makes us ready and it shows us what is necessary. The first thing I, that, that arrives to us in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 all the way through verse two is a particular kind of context because John just doesn't show up out of nowhere. He shows up in a particular kind of context. And if you're wondering why all these crazy names, sorry, Peter, he, he didn't appreciate that too much. He had to stumble through, but it's, it, it, you know, sometimes we just think these are goofy names and we're like, what are they doing there? But it, There's a reason, and we're going to see that. As he begins out, he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, this is is the son of Caesar Augustus that we read about earlier. This is now a different ruler. Now, he's giving us some context, right? The 15th year of his reign. Not just him, so now we know the king, the Caesar, who it is. And then he starts going down and giving us a, more of a context. Pontius Pilate being governor, it says, of Judea. Okay, now we know who's governing Judea. And Herod being tetrarch of Galilee to the north. Herod's a tetrarch up there. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, And this other funny name guy, Traconitus. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Now... There's another area, this whole region. We're basically getting a summary of the area of the Promised Land, who was king of the whole Roman Empire, and then who governed the area in the Promised Land, Judea, Galilee, that surrounding area. And this is important. Why is it important? Because all these men are wicked, godless, oppressive, Gentiles. They're not Jews. So John comes into a particular setting and he's like, what is happening in Israel? Was it good? No, it wasn't good. (laughs) Times were oppressive. Times were harsh. Israel was in the land under Roman rule and governance. And this is what we see here. These people were oppressing Israel, and Israel was groaning under their rule. Taxes were constantly increasing, liberties were constantly being removed, their freedoms were constantly being encroached upon. Sound familiar? This is what Israel deserved. However, because Israel was serving God with their lips and their hearts were far from them, from him, God was bringing this upon them. The oppression, the rule. So not only were the, were the established authorities wicked and oppressive, guess what it goes on to say in verse 2. Verse two. During, this is also what happens during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You know what's odd about that? Well, there are are not two high priests. There's only one high priest in all Israel. So why does it say two? Well, it says two, according to many scholars, because this is really an odd time in Israel's history. Israel is not doing well. According to the historian Josephus, he tells us that Caiaphas was the high priest at this time, but when Pilate had been recalled from the government and sent to plead his cause at Rome, Vitilius, who was at the time governor of Syria, reduced Caiaphas to a private rank and transferred the high priesthood to Annas. So you do have, but yet he did that, but within Israel, Caiaphas was the true high priest, but even you'll see later on in the Gospels that Jesus first goes to Annas and then to Caiaphas. It's a mess. He's showing us that even the priesthood is messed up. Calvin put it this way, when Luke says that there were two high priests, we must not understand him to mean that both held the same title, but that the honor of the priesthood is partly shared with Annas. He went on to say that Luke's narrative indicates such a state of trouble and confusion that though there was not more than one person who was actually high priest, The sacred office was torn in pieces by ambition and tyranny. So what's the context? One of sin, wickedness, oppression, and corruption. All the way down, even within the high priesthood. It's showing that all the authority structures, political, religious, societal, it's not good. It's not good at all. And we're going to actually find out that all the way down it's not good. The people, their hearts were far from God. They were not serving God. And this is why they're in the situation they're in. But then he goes on in this particular passage to describe the geographical context in which John shows up. That's what it says here. Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, then it says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, where? In the wilderness. Significant. In the wilderness. And he went into the region, all the region, around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So where is... John, spending his time, he's far removed from all the evil, influential systems of his day, the government of his day. He's in the wilderness, the place of judgment, the place of refinement, the place where God has always taken his people to test them, to try them, to prepare them. John is in the wilderness. And then God's word comes to him. As he does all the prophets before him, that's a common phrase. When a prophet is called by God, the word of God comes to him. And then where does he go? He goes to perform his ministry in the region of the Jordan Valley. Now, this is also very significant. Because Israel is preparing for the entrance of our Lord. And symbolically, Israel is in the wilderness. And they're like the the Israel of old in the wilderness who hardened their hearts and they were not doing so well. And God was not pleased with them and they needed to be refined and they needed to be prepared and they needed to get ready. And the new generation coming into the land was in the wilderness coming through into the promised land. And where did they come through into the promised land? They came through the Jordan. And on the other side, before they're coming through, they're going to be led out by Joshua. But they had to prepare their hearts. They had to be circumcised. They needed to be ready. And they were told to be prepared and to be ready as they entered the land. And Israel is about to be remade. The new Joshua, the greater Joshua, is showing up and going to lead his people into liberty and freedom, into the true promised land. So John is here at the Jordan significant area in the life and the history of Israel where this particular event is about to take place. So that's the context. We see the political context, the the historical context, the religious context, and we see it's all a mess. We see the geographical context, and it's all loaded, full of meaning. And then in the midst of this context, John has a message. And what is that message? It can be summarized in verse 3. And he says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? This means that he preached to call the people to repentance and baptized those who were repentant and wanted to be washed from their sins and turn to God. He was proclaiming, Hard words to these people. And he certainly did not go into the wilderness and read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He starts off with a winner statement. Look at how he addresses the crowd, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Great opening statement, isn't it? You bunch of snakes. You know, how would you like it this morning if I just came up? You guys uh, you know, sit down. I get up here and I look out and say, You bunch of snakes. <laughs> Doesn't go over so well. Wow. What is he doing? However, but before we get too hard on John, thinking, John, you needed to go to class a little while longer, you need to figure out and understand how to speak to people, how to address them, how to influence them and win them over, again, we can't forget the context. Not only that, we have to understand, I think, who he is specifically referring to. Here, we don't have a lot of detail, but in Matthew chapter 3, we do have a lot more detail. But before we get there, before we get to Matthew 3 and see precisely who it was, we have to understand something, again, to add some light to this context. John's ministry is particular. It's not common. It's not general. It's not like we, we read this, and, and I've heard preachers, I listened to fair of a, a fair few, a few of them on this particular passage, using this as the way we're to preach somehow. I'm like. Well, if you don't understand the context and the people and the situation, the scenario, you're going to mess. This is how you mess the word of God up. It's not what you should do. He had a particular calling to a particular kind of people in a particular setting. And here's why. John is preparing the way, right? And now he understands something. Malachi 4, 5 and 6 says this. The last verses of the Old Testament says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see what he's called to do? Prepare the way. The land is in a disastrous mess. And he's come and called to prepare and turn the hearts of the people, so lest the Lord comes, and it's, so, it's like coming into Sodom and Gomorrah, and he pronounces a curse of utter destruction on it, it's so bad. So his job is to prepare them, the Lord is coming, you need to get ready, we have no time to waste, and he lets them have it. And these are particular people that need to have it. So like a hammer that's used to break up hardened ground, John minces no words, and here comes John the hammer and lays it to them. The congregation before him was not a bunch of sweet, faithful saints. And in fact, I just mentioned earlier, Matthew chapter 3 gives us a little bit more detail as to who these specific words were probably for. Matthew 3, verses 5 through 8, it says this. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. This is John. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Those words sound familiar? They're the exact same words that he says here. It says in our text in Luke 3 that he said it to the crowds. But apparently, I mean, with more detail, a crowd, the crowd that apparently showed up on the day that he said this that they were thinking about was probably full of these Pharisees and Sadducees. And we also know that Jesus spoke the same kind of words to that particular kind of group. He didn't mince words. He went straight to it because that's exactly what they were. However, that doesn't soften things a whole lot. And if you're sitting there listening to that, and you've got the religious elite, just imagine if you're sitting in this particular room, and you've got the mucky mucks, the high elite, the ones that everyone looks up to, the ones that everybody's esteeming, the the ones that you think, in terms of... Their status with God, it's, it's here, and you're here. You see them much higher than you, and he says to them, you brood of vipers, or you bunch of snakes. You're sitting there red-faced, awkward. <laughs> Did you hear what he just called them? Did you hear that? Whoa, this guy fears no one. I it is just boom in your face. He took on the top shelf. He was in their face and he went after these folks and he said a particular thing to a particular crowd for a particular reason. He's a hammer breaking hearts, preparing them for the Lord. The text goes on to say, in in verse go back up to verse four, it says As is written in the book and the words of Isaiah, the prophet, he tells us about this particular message, what he's there to do. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, what does he cry? What does it say? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made some straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh will see the salvation of God. What's he to do? but to prepare a highway. Do you realize that that language is actual, technical, literal language of what a king would do if he was to come into the city? If a king was prepared to come into your city, guess what you'd have to do? The king was arriving, you would go and you would prepare the way. His traveling, his route, his road. You would make all the paths and stay them being crooked. You'd make them straight. You'd fill valleys up so you wouldn't have to go down them. They would make high, high places and hills. They would bring them low. They'd make the crooked straight. The rough places, they'd make them smooth. You know what they're doing? They're preparing a highway for the king. And literally, they would do that. They would spend months and years preparing, knowing that the king was going to make a special arrival into your city. They would, they would do that kind of preparation. But obviously we know that that is not what the Lord desires. He doesn't want a highway prepared. He wants a people prepared. And John is the one preparing the highway of people. Do you realize that if there's a, if a heart is going to be confronted with change. It must first be confronted with reality. No one ever thinks to seek the doctor when they're feeling just fine and everything's okay. It's only after you go to the doctor and get a horrible diagnosis that you will willingly run for the remedy. If you think everything's fine, if everything's just hunky-dory, if everything's great, Do you have any interest in the doctor? No. You find the appointment kind of bothersome. It interrupts your schedule. If you've got a diagnosis that's scary, you run. It changes everything. Given the reality of the circumstances, we often are not willing. Reality of tough circumstances, we're not willing To just go along in life as usual. It calls us to make changes. In like manner. If everything's fine. If everything's great. If everything's good. And you're to hear about the coming of the Lord. And the wrath that is to come. It doesn't. What does that bother you? There's no need. But when John shows up. He minces no words. He brings the hammer and he exposes to them their sin, helps them to understand their sin, and not only that, helps them to understand the diagnosis of that sin. Not only are you sinners, a bunch of snakes. Guess what? Wrath is coming. And as he says in verse, uh, verse, what verse is it? Verse nine. He says to them, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, even now. What's the image? You're supposed to see a tree that's barren. It's dead. It has no fruit on it. And you see an axe laid on the edge of the bottom near the trunk. About ready to be swung, and when it's swung, it starts chopping, and the tree is falls down, and it's thrown into a fire and burned. That's the imagery he has for them. He says, even now, he's helping them to understand the diagnosis is not good. That's his message. It's not good, and the reason he's telling them this is in order to get the this particular kind of response which we will spend a little bit of time on. The response here is really what he's after. He says all this, and he warns them, and he cries out to them, and he explicitly points out their sins. And he does this so that they would repent. Listen to what the crowd says in verse 10. Because of that particular message, because he pointed, pointed out to them their sin, because he warned them of the wrath that was to come, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? What, are you, what, are you, what kind of response are you calling us to? And then what does he do? He goes on to give particulars. The response for them is to repent. And what does that repentance look like? Well, John spells it out. Look what he says in verse 11. And he answered him. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So he gets into the particulars. His message was effective. He points out their sins, and now they're asking, and he he spoke of it in a general way, talking about them and their sin, and what's going to happen as a result of their sin. God's wrath is going to come upon their sin. And what are they to do? They're to repent. And what does that repentance look like? Repentance is a turning. This is technically what repentance is. It's a turning from. So, if you were extorting money, you no longer extort money. And he's spelling it out for them what this looks like. You were doing this. You, were, you have two tunics and you watch people go without, who have none. What does repentance look like? It turns from from living and keeping these two, from showing no compassion, no mercy, showing no justice, and then helping and supporting and giving. It's a turning. Repentance, and hear me on this, repentance is necessary to be prepared for God. If a people are to see God, and when they see God, to rejoice in His presence, they need to be repentant. They need to be turning, in other words, turning from their sin to God. It's absolutely required. So, let me ask you a question here this morning. Are you prepared to see God? If this message was to come to us, the question could be asked, are you prepared to see God? Depends. Are you repentant? Do you cling to sin? Do you hold on to sin? Do you play with sin? Do you delight in sin? Do you hang out with sin? Or do you turn from sin? Do you know what that means? So the crowd says, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means this in particulars. If you're into pornography, it means destroying all of it and feasting your eyes on what is good, right, and true. Repenting. It's not playing around with it. It's not allowing you to keep some extras and some just-in-case moments. It's dealing with it. If you're a slanderer, it means speaking in ways that build up others stop slandering and start building up. If you're a thief, it means stealing no longer and working with your hands so you might have something to give. If you're an adulterer, it means cutting off all ties of infidelity and being loyal to your spouse. And this includes the imagination. If you're a hater and a murderer in your heart, sure, you don't do it literally. It means you forgive, and you bless your enemies. You bless those who curse you. We could go on and on. Every particular sin, the question is, if you have any question, what do we do with sin? What are we to do? Okay, yes, I sin. What am I to do? You're to repent. How do I do that? You put it away, and you turn from it, and you turn to God. Now, someone might say, well, wait a second, Dean. If... This, this is interesting because I thought that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. You know, not by works of righteousness. This sounds like it's by works of righteousness that someone does. And John would answer that question, you're absolutely right. It is by grace alone through faith alone. However, the person who clings to grace is a repentant person. And the only person who has true faith is one who turns to Jesus with all their heart. No one who has biblical faith grabs Jesus with one hand and holds on to sin with another. He can't. Clinging to Jesus requires two hands. Two. It's kind of like thinking that you could somehow... What I'm going to do is hold on to the back of this truck and I'm going to hold on to the back of this truck. Well, you can, but they're going in opposite directions and you're going to be ripped in half. You're going to be forced to make a choice. Repentance is letting go and turning. That requires faith, full faith in Christ. And full faith in Christ is something that manifests itself in action. You know, I'm afraid that sometimes we hear so much, especially nowadays, and I think it's not that it's wrong or bad or it's really good, except that it needs to be balanced. I'm afraid that we hear so much about, you know, God's kindness, God's love, God's grace, God's goodness, that sometimes we forget or can, can become forgetful the fact that God will bring judgment That one day all of us must stand before Him. And only those who've turned from sin and cling to Jesus are safe. Clinging to Him. He's our only hope. We can't play around. We can't mess around. We can't dabble with sin and and then hold on to Jesus and think that's okay. We need to understand that You know, with God, we can also think this. Well, I thought too that the, you know, it's the goodness of God that leads me to repentance. Yes, but that that text also doesn't float all by itself throughout Scripture without any balance. You know, the preaching of John, a call to repentance and a turning, fleeing from the wrath to come, also led to repentance. (laughs) Hundreds and thousands were getting baptized. But it's true, we will not flee from the one who's going to If we think of God as the one who's going to bring a flaming torch and burn up everything that's unrighteous and unholy, we're not going to turn to the torch. That's why we need a balance. We need to understand that the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because we got to turn from his wrath to his grace. We need to understand that unless we understand his wrath, unless we understand his judgment, unless we understand the fact that our God is a consuming fire and will not tolerate unrighteousness and sin, that understanding that helps us to know, whoa, I'm in trouble, but understanding his goodness and grace and kindness in Christ Jesus allows us to turn to him. It has to be a balanced understanding. Because, like I said earlier, often it's the one who understands the dilemma, the situation, the diagnosis, the scenario that turns, right? But you won't turn to a God if you think he's just one big blazing furnace. No, you will turn to him when you understand his love and his grace in Christ Jesus. Jesus. But we have to remain balanced and understanding because if what can happen, and this is what happened with Israel. Do you realize that Israel, you know where their confidence lie? So many of them, and, and, and John attacks it here. He says, tells them in verse 8, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And this is what he says. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do you know why he said that? Because you know where their confidence was? Their confidence were in the fact that they were heirs to the kingdom. They were circumcised. They were descendants of Abraham. They were inheritors of the promise. It's easy for us to gain our confidence in the wrong things. We can gain our confidence in church attendance. We can gain our confidence in the fact that we're we're part of this group of people. We can gain our confidence in the fact that we're baptized. We can gain our confidence from the wrong things. Because if that's where your confidence is at, then you've stopped. You haven't looked through them to the one they're pointing to. You can gain your confidence. You think, well, I take communion every week. Well, great. But you know what this is all pointing to. This is a loyalty to Christ and to Christ alone. If you don't cling to Jesus, there is no hope. So what we have to do is we have to, if our hearts are going to remain supple and tender, is we have to be confronted with the reality of our sin on a regular basis hearing about sin, hearing a message of judgment, hearing a message of wrath. You know, the the person in which the spirit works, they tremble at his warnings because they don't want to be that person, but they delight in his promises because of the hope they're offered. And so we, this morning, we should not be lulled to sleep in understanding, especially in light of all that's been happening around us. If you look at what happened again, back to Oso, the tragedy is horrible. That could have been you or me. This life we're caught up in, we find it ourselves getting lulled to sleep, just thinking that everything's okay, and we playing around with sin, not realizing that we have got to be a people who are very aware of who we are and where, what our standing is before God in relationship to sin and to Christ. We must deal with sin. We must repent of sin. Do you know of any sin in your life? Are you cherishing it? Holding on to it? Not refusing to deal with it? That's a scary place to be. A scary place to be. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, now listen to this, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. None of us have to be informed here this morning that sin has pleasure. There's a delight in it. There is some enjoyment in it because it's self-indulgent. It pleases our flesh. That's why it can be so deceitful. The pleasures that we're having in the darkness where nobody knows. But we should be a people who examine our hearts on a regular basis and be like King David who says, search me, O God, and know me. See if there be any evil way in me expose our hearts and our minds before the Lord, before His Word, and ask Him to search us. Because I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the person who harbors sin in my heart and is betrayed by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to be a repentant person. I want to be a person who sees sin for what it is, who knows that we cannot play around with sin, but we must turn from it and cling fully to Jesus with two hands, not one. We don't want to deceive ourselves either by thinking that, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Of course you do. That's why you're here. I believe in him. I believe in who he was. I believe in what he said about himself and who he was. But just believing in him and yet, and yet in the privacy of your own heart, and you know yourself. I don't. God knows what's going on. You hold on to sin. That is self-deception. And you know why? Because even the demons will have that kind of faith. They know he exists. They believe in him. We've got to let go of sin, turn from sin, and turn to him fully and grasp on with two hands. It's important for us on a very regular basis to be confronted with words like this, confronted with our sin, help us to understand, oh God, and help show me if there be any evil way in me. And why? Why? That I might repent and turn to the living God and find grace and forgiveness and healing and know there that I could be killed today and all is well. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. But only you can answer that. Only you can answer that. All of us were involved in things this week and I don't know where your head's at. I don't know where your heart's at. I don't know what you're involved in, in the privacy of your own mind, in the privacy of your own heart. That's the thing, and that's the thing that God can do with you that I can't. Nobody can. He knows what you're doing in secret. And if you're loving and delighting and playing with sin, thinking you're okay, please, please understand that you're not and repent. That's what John was calling God's people to do, repent. Amen. Father, thank you so much that your word calls us to truth and to reality and to hard things, hard things that we don't like to expose, we don't like to admit, we don't like to have to say, we don't like to have to deal with, because according to our flesh, all we like is ease, pleasure, and delight. Oh, Father, please search us, know us, try us, expose in us. If there be any evil way in us, if there be sin, if we're harboring bitterness or resentment or living in pride and self-indulgence or if we're caught up in who knows what kind of perverseness, if we're hiding behind computer screens and phones and tablets thinking nobody sees Oh, Father, please have mercy and open our eyes that we'd not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, but that we would be repenters. Lead us to repentance, for we ask this in Christ. Amen.